Thank you, Ken. Yeah, and Christians Concerned for the Community is a fantastic ministry to get involved in. They're doing wonderful work serving those around our community, and so I encourage you to look into that. Okay, we are continuing in our series in Daniel this morning. We are up to Daniel chapter 6. This is the big one. This is the one that we think about when we think about Daniel, right? It's got lions, it's got action, drama, you know, lots of fun stuff. So Daniel chapter 6, encourage you to uh, open up and follow along if you have a Bible. It'll also be up here on the screen, so you can follow along up there or follow along on your device. And if you are uh, able to stand, would you mind standing to honor the reading of God's word? Daniel 6, beginning in verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document in injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning this injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king
king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and, bef- and fear before the God of Daniel. Amen. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders. In heaven and on earth, he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who sees, who hears, who knows all, and who knows us. And Lord, that you are a God who cares. So I pray this morning, as we listen to your word, Father, that you would open our eyes to see that and to see you. Lord, would you fill our hearts with a joy in you and a love for you that is unmistakable. Would you give us faith? Would your Holy Spirit lead us into all truth? And would you be exalted, we pray, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And be seated. Well, perhaps you remember the story of the 33. In August of 2010, a copper mine in Chile caved in, trapping 33 miners 2,300 feet underground. And for 17 days, 
rescue workers labored to drill down to their location, not even sure if they were still alive. And all the while, those 33 huddled together, collected water as they could find it. They worked together as a team, solidarity. They rationed food, sometimes as little as a teaspoon of canned tuna in a whole day. And they also turned to the Lord. Jose Enriquez uh, was one of the miners. He shared how they turned to God in prayer multiple times a day. How they sang hymns to encourage each other in their faith. Enriquez uh, came to be called the pastor by the other miners there because of his efforts to lift them up spiritually during this adversity. And then on the 17th day, their prayers were answered. The drill broke through the ceiling, and they attached a note to the end of the drill bit so that when the workers pulled it out, they discovered this note that said, We are well in the refuge, signed the 33. It took another 52 days before the work was finally finished for them to be able to be lifted out of that mine. And the world looked on as one by one, those miners were brought out of the the depths of the earth and back to life, as it were. Enrique said afterwards that he and many of the miners were aware that there was a 34th miner with them. That even in the darkness, even in the difficulty, that they often felt the presence of God. He said, I think the hero of this whole story is Jesus Christ. He was with us every day. It was a remarkable story of rescue, but even more than that, it was a remarkable story of faith. In the series in the book of Daniel, we're exploring how seeing God more clearly, seeing him for who he truly is, for how he truly works in this world, cultivates in us a resilient faith in him. It it, it equips us, it establishes us, and encourages us to endure in our faith in the midst of a challenging world. And so as we've been working through the series, we've reflected on God's faithfulness, his wisdom, his, his greatness, his worthiness, his sovereignty. Last week, we looked at his holiness. And this week in Daniel 6, we reflect on an attribute of God that is really foundational to all of those. And it is, it's simple, that God is living. That in this chapter, this chapter is not only a remarkable story of rescue, it's a story of faith in the one true living God. And what we see here is that the God whom we serve is the one true living God. So we're going to look at this in two parts, serving the living God and trusting the living God. Uh, it's, a, it's another week, of course, another chapter, and we have another king, uh, such as the way, I guess, in the ancient Near East. So as we saw last week, Belshazzar is out. 
the last king of Babylon, and now Darius, or Darius the Mede, as he was called in the previous chapter, is the new king. And I'll start off with this little bit of an aside that we don't actually know who this is. There are a couple of options about who this could be. This could be Cyrus, who all, all records indicate was the first Persian king, so Darius may have been another name for Cyrus, and there's a way you could read that in the last verse of this chapter. It's also possible that this was one of Cyrus's generals, the one who he sent to conquer Babylon. Uh, so this reference to Darius is, is something of a puzzle piece that we don't quite yet know how to fit into the whole historical picture. But I think it's important, I, want, I wanted to spend a moment pointing it out, because it need not distress us or undermine our confidence in Scripture. This has been the case for numerous historical details in the Bible over the centuries. And time after time, when we've had these question marks, we've had these kind of blank spots on the map, if you will, time after time, as more evidence has been unserviced, archaeological discoveries have eventually helped us to understand how the Bible and these ancient Near Eastern uh, histories fit together. And so over and over again, these discoveries have confirmed the witness of the Old Testament. This was, in fact, even the case of the identity of the previous king, Belshazzar. We didn't know who that was for a long time. <clears throat> there were skeptics around the historical reliability of who this person was. And then in a, a mid-20th century archaeological discovery, we were able to identify him and link him to this dynasty. Same thing happened with Sennacherib of the Assyrian Empire. There were skeptics for a long time about the historical reliability of that and even the whole Assyrian Empire. And then in the mid-19th century, uh, archaeologists discovered one of the greatest discoveries of all time. They found three Assyrian cities, including evidence of Nineveh, and along with that, records of uh, Sennacherib and his invasions in Judah and Israel. And now that's one of the most reliable things that we, we know about the ancient Near East because of that evidence. So time and time again, evidence has come out later that has shed light on how these things fit together. So all that to say is the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. It simply means that we have some puzzle pieces still kind of sitting on the side of the table, you know, Maybe uh, we're, we're trying to figure out how to fit them all together. So Darius is the king, and in this chapter, he is establishing a government. And this includes these 120 provincial governors to rule over the land. And over them, he's placing three high officials, and Daniel is one of them. And Daniel excels so much in his work that Darius takes note of his excellence and intends to elevate him to the highest position in the land. And of course, this causes a little consternation amongst his peers and his competitors, right? They start to get disgruntled because they're vying for similar influence. And so what we see here is that they orchestrate a political takedown. They start searching for something that they could use against Daniel to discredit him, to undermine him, right? And they look, and they look, and they look, and they can't find any dirt on him because it says that he was faithful. He was a man of integrity. 
And so they changed plans. They started looking for ways to trap him. And they persuaded the king to issue a decree that no one was to pray to any other god except for him for 30 days or be thrown into a den of lions. Unaware of their intent, of course, Darius said, this sounds good. He agreed to it. He signed off on it. And now these conspirators had a particular reason for pushing this restriction. Verse 5 tells us that they sought out a complaint against Daniel that would be in connection with the law of his God. They did their homework here, and they discovered that the God whom Daniel worshipped and served was exclusive. They, of course, didn't have to look far for that. First commandment says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods besides me. So perhaps they came across that, and they had all that they needed. So they created this, this trap. They duped the king. And then Daniel is caught praying his enemies bring the charges against him. The king looks for a way to find a legal loophole, but he's bound by the laws of his land. And so Daniel is taken to the lion's den. And as the stone is shut across it, he declares, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. The den shut and sealed. The king returns to a worried night of sleep. And as soon as dawn breaks, the king hurries to the den. And as, as he approaches, he cries out in anguish, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Now, why does this presumably pagan king talk like this. Given Daniel's position, he probably spent a lot of time with this king. And clearly the king came to trust Daniel profoundly, given the, the pending promotion, right, to the highest position in the land. But you can tell also that the king cares deeply for Daniel. He's distressed by the news, right, of this trap. He searches for a way to get Daniel out of this punishment. He wished for, perhaps even prayed for, his deliverance. He was up anxiously all night, and then he dashed to see him first thing in the morning. So the king has a great deal of respect, of trust, maybe even of admiration for Daniel. Which means that when the king cries out at the lion's den, what he says is informed by what he knows personally about Daniel. Daniel lived in such a way that it was evident to all those around him what kind of God he worshipped, what kind of God he served. In other words, the character of his God was evident by the way that he lived. And what Daniel demonstrated to all those who looked on was that he was a servant of the living God. Now, what does it mean that God is... <clears throat> the living God. <clears throat> Perhaps most obviously it means that God is alive, right? He's not like the inanimate idols of the pagan religion, the idols of gold or silver or wood that the prophets just love to mock. Jeremiah absolutely unleashed his full furor and anger on them and his mockery. He said, 
in Jeremiah 10, their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. You know, you almost can't help but chuckle at the imagery. This person who needs to, oh, don't, don't forget to pick up your God and put him in your pocket so that you are uh, watched over. You know, what kind of God is that? But Jeremiah shows the contrast to the true God. There's none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. God is living and everlasting. He's not created. He's not a tool or an object or statue that is fabricated. He's a living being. And in fact, in him is the very source of life itself. Jesus taught us, you remember in the Gospel of John, that the Father has life in himself and grants life. All other beings in the universe are contingent. Their existence is dependent on something else. But God is not contingent. He possesses life intrinsically. And he not only lives, he's the author and the source of all life. So God is alive, but God is also active. Sociologist Christian Smith coined the term moralistic therapeutic deism to describe the prevailing theological perspective of teenagers in the mid-aughts. And along with the beliefs that describe this kind of framework, uh, you know, the beliefs of the fact that God created the world and we should be good people and that sort of thing, there was one defining mark to these, this set of beliefs, and it was this. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to solve a problem. That is, God is removed from this world. He's kind of absent from my life until a need arises, and then I go to him. This has perhaps been the framework of many in the church. But it's not the picture that we get of God in his word. The living God is not distant or removed. The living God is not passively watching the world, leaving us to our own devices. The living God is actively working in his creation. And that means that he's not only sovereignly governing over his creation like we talked about a few weeks ago, but he's actively working in the lives of his people. You think of the examples of this in Scripture. You think of Mount Sinai, right? And the Israelites were so convictive of, of their sin and fearful of God's glory that they said to Moses, Who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? They're terrified that the holy, glorious God of the universe spoke to them. Wooden statues, statues do not speak. Figurines do not speak. Only a living person speaks. And God spoke to his people to teach them, to instruct them, to reveal himself to them. The living God relates to his people. We think of 
Another example, 40 years later when the Israelites were set to cross the Jordan into the promised land. And Joshua wanted to remind them that God is with them. And so he tells them, here is how you will know that the living God is with you. Take the Ark of the Covenant and stand in the Jordan River. And when the soles of the priest's feet touch the river, the water will split. And that's exactly what happened. The living God guided his people and made a way for them. Or perhaps the occasion that sticks out most in our minds is David's confrontation with Goliath. In the early days of the Israelite monarchy, the Philistines and the Israelite armies are encamped against one another and this giant keeps coming out and cursing the Israelites and hurling insults at their God. And the whole Israelite army's terrified and cowering in fear. But then little David, the youngest of his brothers, is doing a supply run. And he happens to overhear this. What does he say? What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The living God. The reality of the living God emboldened David and the living God provided deliverance for his people. The one true living God is actively working in this world and in the lives of his people. And that is the God whom Daniel served and that's the God whom we serve. We serve the one true living God who is actively working in our world today. Today, he is revealing himself through his word and his spirit to people. Today, he is opening people's eyes to their sin, their brokenness, and their need for salvation. Today, he is drawing people to himself by the power of the gospel. He's taking them from death to life and from darkness into light and from bondage into freedom. Today, he is transforming people's lives globally by the millions every year. I shared a story, I guess a couple of months ago now, of a friend who we're calling Muhammad, who lives in a, a closed country. He's a, uh, he lives in a, a Muslim country, and he's come to faith in Jesus Christ. The Lord appeared to him in visions. And then there were some friends that he knew who were also Christians who ministered the gospel to him. And he, we got connected uh, to him through someone in our community group. We have to be kind of discreet about the details uh, because of security concerns. But he's been zooming in to our community group through the spring. He was zooming in. And several weeks ago, he had not only come to faith in Jesus, he said he wanted to be baptized. In a country where he could lose his life for proclaiming his faith and being baptized. He wanted to do that. And so some members of our community group were able to zoom in and join him as he professed faith in Christ. The living God is actively working in our world today. And I think the question for us that's, that's put to us in this text, the question that we have to, to grapple with in our own hearts is simply this. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? 
And I don't mean like intellectually we just agree like, yes, we, I know that God is there and God's working, right? When you search your heart, do you genuinely believe that God is living? That behind the blessings and the difficulties, the joys and even the tragedies, that there is a sovereign, good, and gracious God who lives? Do you believe that God is working in this world today? Do you see him as the living God, as alive and active? When you pray to him, do you see him as living? When others look at your life, do they see someone captivated by him? Do they see his presence and his power reflected in you? Do you see it? He's there even when it's difficult for us to see. When we feel isolated, when we feel hopeless and helpless, when we watch our friends or our loved ones walk away, when we see the moral decline around us, or we feel overwhelmed by the struggle, even then, he's there. He's alive. How radically would our lives change if we saw him in that way? If we really, really viewed him in that way? What courage would that give us in the face of opposition? What joy would that bring us even in the darkest of days? One of my favorite stories in the Narnian series is comes in The Horse and His Boy when Shasta meets Aslan. You remember Shasta is a young boy. He escaped from the abusive man that raised him, uh, and he's fleeing to Narnia along with Bree and his companions. And at the lowest point in his journey, at the darkest moment, he seems alone. He seems like all hope is lost. Aslan comes to him as this large creature in this large voice. And the story says, Shasta told him how he'd never known his real father or mother or been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives. And of all their dangers in Tashbin and about his night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out in the desert. And he told about the heat and the thirst in their desert journey and how they were they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Erebus, his friend. And also how long it was since he'd had anything to eat. And the large voice says, I do not call you unfortunate. Shasta replied, don't you think it was bad luck that we met so many lions? And the voice said, there was only one lion. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two lions the first night. The voice responded, there was only one, but he was swift of foot. I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you would reach King Loon in time. 
I was the lion. You do not remember who pushed the boats in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive him. In the midst of our difficulties, of our pain, of our confusion, in the midst of a challenging world, how often do we wonder, where are you, God? And all the while, he says, I'm right here. He's living and active at work in our world. So we serve the living God. Secondly, we trust the living God. You know, when the edict is made, how does Daniel respond? It says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel continued to pray even when he knew the danger. He didn't do so sheepishly. He kept the windows wide open. He prayed three times a day. He poured out his heart in thanksgiving, in petitions, just as he had done previously, undeterred by the risk. Now, if we've heard this story a bunch of times it can be hard for us to really appreciate the seriousness of that situation, right? Because we already know the ending. We just kind of fast forward through it in our mind. You know, but when you, when you know the outcome of something, it's difficult to feel the raw emotion and, and sense the danger as when you experience something for the very first time. Daniel did not know the outcome. He knew the risk. He knew he was likely going to be spending some time with some hungry lions. But he had no idea how that was going to turn out. In fact, the natural assumption would be in that situation that this is the end of his life. He's been faithful. He has endured for decades as a follower of God, a worshiper of God. And now this may be the end. But regardless of the outcome... Daniel trusted God, and God delivered him. The climactic moment in the story is when the king runs to the tomb, the, the den of lions, asking if Daniel was delivered. There's a pause, and he hears Daniel's voice. My God sent his angel to shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me. How does the king respond? Of course, Daniel's lifted out, not a scratch on him. The accusers get thrown in or immediately trampled. Verification of God's presence there, delivering Daniel. And the king responds by making a new decree that replaces the old. He calls all people to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And once again, Daniel gives evidence to the character of his God, the living God. 
He trusts the living God no matter the outcome. Now, if we take this story and we make it into a paradigm, we misunderstand the point. The point is not that if I trust God, he will deliver me from adversity. It sounds nice, but it's not true. Think of all of the examples in Scripture. David trusted God. He had to flee for his life. The apostles, every one of them trusted God, and every one of them was executed, with the exception of John, who was exiled. And of course, Jesus perfectly trusted God and experienced the greatest adversity imaginable. So the point is not that trusting God means that you'll be delivered out of your afflictions. The lesson is that God can deliver us from affliction, but whether he does or not, our responsibility is to trust him. He can deliver. He may deliver. We should ask him to deliver. But whether he delivers us from affliction or not, we stand firm. We trust him. We serve him because he is the living God. In the year 155 AD, Polycarp was an 86-year-old bishop and pastor of the church in Smyrna. It's now modern-day Izmir, Turkey. He was sought out and captured by the Roman authorities and made to stand before the Roman proconsul to be persuaded against his faith. And this is what's written, this early account of his martyrdom. It says, On his confession that he was Polycarp, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, Have respect to your old age, and other similar things, according to their custom. And he told them, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, and say, Away with the atheists, meaning Christians. But Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude of the wicked heathen then in the stadium, and waving his hand towards them, while with groans he looked up to heaven, said, Away with the atheists. Then the proconsul, urging him and saying, Swear, and I will set you at liberty, reproach Christ. And Polycarp declared, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? They made a funeral pyre for him, set him on the fire. He prayed, they lit the match, and the fire did not consume him. So a centurion had to come up and run him through with the sword. If we trust him, We know that whether by our life or by our death, that we will be with him. And he will be with us. And so like Daniel, we pour out our prayers to him. We give thanks to him with a grateful heart. We lift up our request to him. We ask him for deliverance. We pray that he would heal the cancer. That he would restore the marriage that he would set us free from our anguish. 
But whether we're rescued in this life or not, we trust him. We trust him. And we can stand firm in such faith, even in the face of lions, because we know that he cares for us. He's already demonstrated that. You see, the living God took on flesh. He became immortal. He experienced the anguish and the pain of the world for us. Jesus was the true and better Daniel who went into the lion's den, as it were, in order to rescue us from our sin. And he was not delivered. Instead, he gave up his life so that we would be delivered from the guilt of our sin, so that we would be set free. The living God died so that you would live. So regardless of the outcome in this world, regardless of if we experience deliverance in this lifetime, we can trust him completely because he will deliver us in the life to come. Amen.